Bible, if you would please, and open it to Matthew chapter 9. And I'd like you to find this scripture rather quickly this morning. I'm not going to give you a long introduction like I usually do. Uh, I have just three short verses that I want to read today, and I'm going to give you the long introduction after I read the verses this time. So it's going to be a little bit different. So if you'll find this in Matthew chapter 9, three verses that we want to read, beginning with verse number 33, and there are some uh, great truths, I think, that we need to draw out of these scriptures today. Stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. Matthew chapter 9, verse number 33. And when the devil was cast out, the dumb spake, and the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never so seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casteth out devils through the prince of devils. Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we... Thank you again for the wonderful services that we had thus far today. We pray, Lord, that you'd be with us as we look into your word and open up hearts to the gospel of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Most of you know by now, if you've been coming here very long, that we are in a prolonged study of the gospel of Matthew. We're now over two years in our study, just now getting to the end of the ninth chapter. And I've told you on several occasions that we are entering into a a portion of Matthew that has a great emphasis that's placed upon evangelism. Now, most of you that have attended church for quite some time, you are aware of what we mean by evangelism. Evangelism simply means the preaching of the gospel of Christ. That's when you tell others about Jesus. Um, Perhaps we might ought to explain what the word gospel itself means. That word means the good news. The good news that Jesus Christ came into the world to save people from their sins. There are many churches that are called evangelistic churches, which means that they should be in the practice, or they are practicing, uh, telling the gospel to others. And that's the great work of the church that Christ has given us to do. When Jesus was crucified and just before he ascended back to heaven, he commissioned the church with an evangelistic mission. He said in Matthew chapter 28, scriptures that are very familiar to all of you, he said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. True churches have always considered that this is a mandate from Christ. We don't even believe it's possible that you could be a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ, a Christ-honoring church, unless the membership was committed to practicing evangelism. The growth of the church in the first century was dependent upon the willingness of people to reach others with the gospel of Christ. Now, it's possible for us to see the gospel uh, dying out or Christianity dying out within the first century or at least being very severely restricted to the nation of Israel if the church didn't wholeheartedly believe and commit themselves to what Jesus told them to do to go out and reach the world with the gospel. 
And it's for that reason that the Apostle Paul was chosen to be a, a missionary to the Gentiles. He was given the riches of God's grace to take out to other peoples, to other races, to the Gentile people, to go beyond the nation of Israel and the Jews and to tell people what Jesus came into the world to do. And there was such evangelistic zeal in that first century and in the first 100 years of the church that by the time that that 100 years was over, you could scarcely go anywhere in the Roman Empire and not find somebody who at least had heard about people called Christians. Now, they may not have had a church. They may not have understood it very clearly. But at least if you were anybody that listened to anything, you knew that there were people that were called Christians. And the reason for that is evangelism, the preaching of the gospel. It's the desire that's been implanted into the people of God, into their hearts, that they want to tell others how Jesus came to save people from their sins. So we now enter into a section of the Gospel of Matthew in which Jesus is teaching evangelism. And this becomes a very significant part of his ministry. Up to this time, he'd been doing the work himself. He was the one that was doing all of the preaching. He was the main proponent of the gospel. Now, there were a few like John the Baptist that was preaching also. But for the most part, Jesus was the one who did the preaching. And well, he should have been the greatest proponent of the gospel because he is the gospel. Jesus is the gospel himself. He is the good news that saves. And there is no gospel without him. I've also stated continuously for months now that Matthew records chapters 8 and 9 as proof of Christ's kingship. The miracles that he did are all proof that he was the long-promised Messiah, that he is the deliverer, that he is the uh, savior of Israel and of the world. He is a king who is going to come and establish a righteous kingdom over the whole earth. When Jesus had finished the Sermon on the Mount, which was the declaration of the intent of his kingdom, the people were amazed at what he said. Scripture says that, that the people said he speaks as one who has authority. He doesn't talk like our religious leaders talk. That was at the end of chapter 7. And then moving on into chapters 8 and 9, the miracles that follow give validation of every word that Jesus spoke. And so you have this great sermon that he preached. You have all the miracles that he did. Then you have Christ's claim that he said that he could forgive people of their sins. And so now decisions must be made. What are you going to do with Jesus? You've heard the claims. You've seen the miracles. And now do you receive him as your Savior and as your Lord, or do you not? And that's the decision that was placed before the people. What are they going to do with him? He teaches differently, differently from what they'd ever heard. He makes new demands. He gave us a different message, a different interpretation of God's law, things that they had not heard. And all of that was backed up by the proof of the miracles. So now, what are you going to do with him? And that's what I want to talk to you about today. Decisions must be made. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand our doctrine. We do not believe that anybody is regenerated by a decision. But we do mean or do believe that every person must make a conscious choice to receive the gospel of Christ. 
and how you make that choice, the enabling factors for that choice, that's a theological discussion that I'm going to leave for another time. But for now, for today, you need to understand that you need to be saved from your sins. You must be enabled to go to heaven, and you must make a decision concerning Jesus. You must decide whether you are going to believe him and if you are going to surrender to his leadership and to his lordship. Now we notice in verse number 35 that the scripture says, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Now we're going to take that scripture first and we're going to work our way backwards through the other two. And really, what I've just told you in the introduction of the sermon has mostly been about this verse. Jesus began his ministry among the people. He was doing the miracles, and he was teaching in their synagogues. Now, let me just give you a little bit of an explanation of what that was like. What was it like to teach in the synagogue? Well, I think most of you have heard of synagogues. Just about every city in, a, in America and cities across the world, at least cities of, that are of any size, you'll find Jewish synagogues. There's one in Katati over near the town center. There's a non-Orthodox synagogue there. I believe they describe themselves as practicing egalitarian liberal Judaism or progressive Judaism. But there are many synagogues. Some of them are Orthodox, some of them are liberal, but they're spread throughout all the cities of the world. Why do they have synagogues? Well, it's because the Jews don't have a temple. The synagogue system grew up between the time period of the Old and New Testaments. That's a period of about 400 years. And it grew up then because the people of Israel had been dispersed out of their homeland. They couldn't go to Jerusalem to worship, so they had to have places to gather together. So their synagogues became a place of the Jews to gather together to look at God's word. Now, today you'll find that many synagogues use the word temple in their name, but they don't really mean the temple that God gave. They're not trying to say that because they know they don't have a temple. Since A.D. 70, there has not been a temple. The temple was destroyed by the Romans. When they came into Jerusalem, they burned the city, they tore down the temple, and so the Jews do not have a temple today. But this synagogue system grew up during that 400-year period. And during the time of Jesus, there actually was a temple in Jerusalem. That's before AD 70. And because the people couldn't always go to Jerusalem in order uh, to worship God, to do the things they did there, they had these synagogues scattered all throughout the different cities and villages. Now, the ones that we're talking about here are synagogues in the area of Galilee. And this is where Jesus is ministering at the time that we're talking here. And so he went to all these different synagogues, and there he would teach in those synagogues. He would read from the Word of God, and he would give an explanation of the reading. For example, there's the time that Jesus went to the synagogue in Nazareth, which was his hometown, and he he took the Word of God, and he explained what the scripture said. He happened to be reading from the book of Isaiah then. In Luke chapter 4, just to give an example of what Jesus did, it says, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. 
That's Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. So that's what they did in the synagogue. Much like we do right here. We gather in a building. I read the scriptures to you. I explain to you what the scriptures mean. And then I tell you what you need to do in relation to those scriptures. So I don't give sermonettes. And you'll find that out in just a minute because it's going to go quite a bit longer. I don't give sermonettes. I don't give object lessons. I don't do passive readings. I don't give pep talks. I'm not here to be a motivational speaker for you. I am here to read God's Word, to tell you what it means, and then to let you know what to do about it. And that's what Jesus did. He went into the synagogues and he taught there, he explained the scriptures, and then the Bible says that he went out from there and he preached the gospel of the kingdom to the people. And as radical and as uncommon as his teachings were, he backed up everything he said by all of those miracles. And so when the people were confronted with him, they had a decision. What are we going to do about him? Are we going to believe him? Are, are we going to change from our ways and the things that we've always done? And are we going to follow him? Now today I want you to notice that there are three different answers to those questions in the scriptures that we've just read. Nobody is neutral towards Jesus. Everybody is going to react towards Jesus in some way or another. I mean, even if that reaction is just to sit still and indecision and say, I will do nothing, indecision is a decision. And you've decided what you're going to do with Jesus. Now, one of the reactions is very sad indeed, and we find it in verse number 34. But the Pharisees said, He casteth out devils through the prince of devils. Here is what we would call the reaction of opposition to the facts. You just oppose whatever it is that Jesus does. And we're very much familiar by now with that opposition of the scribes and the Pharisees. These are the self-righteous people, the leaders of the people, who are in danger of losing their esteem among the people. And that's because everything that Jesus said was different from what they said. And if they ever did say something that he said, they meant something different by it. He was one who spoke with authority. The people noticed that. They noticed that he was different from their scribes, from their leaders. And that was a stinging indictment against them. Uh, Jesus was very dangerous to their prestige with the people. And so what they did was just simply to oppose him. Whatever he said, whatever he did, they were opposed to it. And so whenever a miracle was done, those Pharisees, the scribes and Pharisees, were always there, and the people would look at them to see what their reaction would be to what Jesus was doing. And they were always highly indignant. Sometimes they tried to trip him up. They would bring out their best orators and their brilliant professors and their most educated and erudite among them. But they were never able to argue him against him, never able to out-argue him. They never could prove him wrong. And so we see them many times when they're finished trying to argue with Jesus, they would just hang their heads and walk away, and they're thinking, we'll get him next time. But they never did. 
They were the skeptics. They were opposed to very clearly demonstrated facts. And people are often that way with Jesus. And I want to show you here, as we consider this, two important ways that people that are opponents to Christianity react. Now, the first thing, or first way that people react when they're opposed to Christianity is that they will give unreasonable explanations. Unreasonable explanations. And this is what they did when Jesus cast a demon out of the man in verse number 33. Here was a man who's deaf and dumb because of a demon. And when Jesus cast that demon out, the man began to speak. Now, they all agreed. It was a demon that caused this. The demon stopped his speech. So now, how are you going to explain how Jesus cast that demon out? Demons are powerful. How did Jesus do that? Well, the Pharisees also admitted that there was a demon there. But their explanation is, he cast out demons through the prince of demons. In other words, he's using the power of Satan to cast out demons. I'm not going to spend a lot of time with that, but uh, that was about the silliest, nonsensical explanation that could be given. In, uh, in chapter 12, Jesus deals with that. Uh, they, they accuse him of casting out devils by Satan. And here's what Jesus said in Matthew 12. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? That was an unreasonable explanation. And people give unreasonable explanations to dismiss Christianity. They did that when they denied the resurrection. They paid the guards at the tomb of Jesus to say they fell asleep and the disciples came and stole his body away. They didn't know what to do with him, so they always came up with unreasonable explanations. Now, do you ever hear people giving unreasonable arguments against Christianity? What happens when God's people stand up against vice and corruption? What happens when we as Christians say that, well, this society is destroying the home because people don't discipline their children any longer? And we say that, Pornography is degrading to women. And we say we are, we are destroying ourselves by allowing all this liquor trade and by people thinking they can, they can uh, uh, legalize prostitution today or they want to make marijuana legal and all those things. And I could go down the uh, list as long as my arms, all these different things that people uh, want to do to defy God's commandments. And some nutcase comes along and he says, no, we need to do all of those things. Christians are bad because they want to clean up corruption. How stupid is that argument? How, how stupid is that? Do you know without Christians that there never would have been a hospital? Without Christians, there wouldn't be any public education. Christianity is what started that. Without Christians, there never would have been a rightly run welfare program. Who is it that taught love and compassion and care for people? Wasn't the scribes and the Pharisees. And you'll find this to be true, that nobody has ever done much in those areas unless they were a believer in the one true Jehovah God and a worshiper of him. So there are unreasonable explanations. It's unreasonable to oppose Christ on any level. It's unreasonable to oppose him on a secular level. And certainly we know it's unreasonable to oppose him on a spiritual level because he is almighty God. But then Christianity is also opposed when they give reasonable explanations. Now, really, I'm just giving you more unreasonable explanations, but the world thinks they have this figured out. There are reasonable explanations that you can give to explain away the power of God. Now, we're a little bit short on time, and I've got a lot to say today, so I'm just going to give you one example. How about evolution? 
How about the origins of our universe? How does the, how does the world today try to explain all that away? Now, what reasonable person would argue that something came out of nothing? I mean, unless you're going to agree that there's a God, what, what person is going to argue that something came out of nothing? Who's going to argue for the complexity of life by random processes? Who's going to argue against the established laws of our universe, the laws of thermodynamics that tell us that all systems tend to disorder, things do not tend towards order, things go into chaos when they're left by themselves. That's an established law of the universe. Who's going to argue against that? Just about every teacher that teaches your children in public school, just about every educator in the science departments of our public universities, And the Bible says that such people are without excuse because the evidence of God's creation is seen everywhere in every corner of the universe. But scientists have revised and they've updated and they've reversed and they've recalculated all their silly theories of universe and life. And for the past hundred years, every generation has swallowed it all And the scientists have been inconsistent. They've never found their missing link. They've never really decided how old the universe is or whether or not the universe came to existence because a pinhead exploded somewhere in space and now we have all of the universe today. People think they have it all figured out and they come up with their reasonable explanations that are never supported by verifiable facts. And what is it that science today tries to prove? What do they they claim? Well, they say, you have to have empirical evidence for this. But they have none. And yet people believe all the theories. Let me tell you something about Jesus, though. We read it in verse 35 again. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every sickness among the people. Those are the facts. The miracles are verified. Diseases are cured. Storms are stilled. Devils are cast out. Dead people come back to life. Lives are are changed. Those are the facts. But you have people like the scribes and the Pharisees. People have decided what they're going to do with the facts. They're just going to oppose them. They just oppose the facts, and thus they oppose Jesus. Jesus went to Jerusalem later with some more facts. He told the disciples before he ever went. He said, I'm going there, and I'm going to be crucified. After thousands of miracles that he did, he said, I'll be rejected and crucified. So he was brought before Pilate, the Roman governor. False accusations were made against him, and you know what Pilate asked? Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do with Jesus, which is called the Christ? And they all say unto him, Let him be crucified. What are you going to do with Jesus? I mean, he went into all the cities. He, he goes to the villages. He treats the sick. He eradicates disease. He casts out demons. And amazingly, the people come to the conclusion or don't come to the conclusion, look what we have in Jesus. We have struck gold with Jesus. Instead, they said it doesn't matter. All the facts are there. But let him be crucified. And I wish I had time to explore this further, but do you remember what happened when Moses sent spies into Canaan? God had promised to Israel that they would possess Canaan. God said, I'm going to give you that land. And so he sent ten plagues on Egypt. Israel was in Egypt. They were kept in bondage there, and God sent ten plagues to get them out of Egypt. 
Then he took them through the Red Sea and that great miracle where Charlton Heston parted the waters. I mean, this great miracle that God did there. Then he got them into the wilderness and, 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 he, and he gave them water out of the rock. He gave them quail to eat. He gave them manna. And Moses sent 10 spies, or 12 spies rather, over into Canaan to spy out the land. And 10 of those spies came back and said, we can't take the land. The people there are too great for us. Ten plagues for each of those cowardly spies. They saw the miracles that got them to that point. God had just overthrown the mightiest nation in all the world at that time. That was the nation of Egypt. And those ten spies came back and said, we can't do it. We can't conquer this land. And God said, what do I have to do? What more can be done for these hard-headed idiots? That's in the Smith translation. He said, what are we going to do with them? So they opposed him, even though they had bushels of facts about what God could do, what Jehovah God could do, yet they opposed it. And same story today. For many people, Christians are the problem, not us. Well, there's another reaction in verse number 33. We're going backwards here, of course. Verse 33 says, And when the devil was cast out, the dumb spake, and the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never so seen in Israel. Now here we have another reaction, and this is the reaction of reception of the favors. You see, when you're, they're confronted with Jesus, there are some people that are opposed to the facts, but there are some people that are glad to receive Christ's favors, but only the favors. Some people are in love with what Jesus can do for them. Now, I'm going quickly here, so keep up with me a little bit. Who do we see that does this? Well, first of all, we have people that have fascination with his character. Some people are just really fascinated with his character. Jesus was really a good guy. And they're interested in what Jesus could do. He's their role model. But you know, they get confused really fast about this because they say, we like Jesus because he loved everybody and Jesus was tolerant of all people. The truth about Jesus is that religiously and savingly and godly and righteously, Jesus was the most intolerant person that ever lived. He's the one who said, there is no path to heaven but me. He's the one who said, there's nobody good but God. And he's the one who said that unless you believe in me, unless you follow me, you're going to die in your sins. You're going to spend eternity in the fires of hell that are never quenched. Somehow that part of the record of what Jesus says, that gets overlooked. That part gets ignored. And instead, people are fascinated with him. They're fascinated with the lovey-dovey Jesus. They're enamored with the soft-skinned and blue-eyed and flowing Fabio hairdo of the pictures of Jesus. And so they grab onto that image and they turn Jesus into one who condones everything that anybody wants to do. So they say Jesus was all about peace, love, and harmony. And there's some Christians that are a little bit confused about it too. They want peace in their families. And so rather than putting Christ first in their family and saying, I'm going to serve Jesus no matter what anybody says, they say, well, we, we, we need a little bit of peace in our family. I don't want to offend my husband. I don't want to offend my wife. I don't want to offend mom and dad and grandpa and grandma. So I'm just going to go along to get along. But it was Jesus who said that people in your family will hate you when you decide to follow him. It was Jesus who said, I came to divide families, to set at variance fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and wives and children. 
And what did he mean by that? What he meant was, you need a whole lot more than fascination with his character. You need to follow him. You need to make a decision to follow him no matter who it upsets. So what are you going to do with Jesus? People reacted in different ways. They still do. They like what they think is the good side that favors them. They, they like it, and they say, well, peace out, brother. Anything that you want to do, that's okay with me. And it's not really fascination with Jesus' character at all. You know what that is? That's really fascination with their own character because they're going to do what they want to do. Whatever it is they like to do, somehow they found that Jesus supports what they like to do. Well, you have those people. Then you have some that have fanaticism with his miracles. Now, here's another group, fanatics about the miracles. These are people that marveled when they saw miracles. So they were fanatics about it, and they followed him everywhere because they were always looking for the next big miracle. All the healing miracles, they loved to see those. But you know the ones they really liked the most? Food miracles. They really loved the food miracles. Now, feeding people, feeding the 5,000, then Jesus fed 4,000, to follow Jesus around like he was the food bank. And Jesus finally said, you don't seek me because of the miracles. You're after me because of the food. And what he meant was, it's not because the miracles and you believe that I'm truly the Christ and you are going to trust me. You see the miracles and you follow me around because you like the food. Now, you know, there's a whole industry of religion that's grown up around miracles. People are, today are fascinated about miracles. They're not really interested in the Christ of the Bible. They're not interested in what the Scriptures actually say. And so you'll find today, with all of these faith healers and all of those people out there today like that, they have abandoned any real serious study of Scripture. You don't find any real Scripture with them or study of it. There's no exposition of truth like Jesus did in the synagogues. They just got a racket going on. And they've got this thing going on making millions of dollars giving people false hope. So you have the hopping, jumping, tongue-talking, miracle-seeking crowd. And that's because they're following the signs. They have to have the sign to make their faith real. I don't have time to go into the charismatic movement today, but I'll tell you something, that stuff never made anybody a Christian. There's never a miracle that made anybody a Christian unless it's like I said last week, the miracle of the new birth. That's the only miracle that we need to look for today. So you have all of these fanatics with the miracles, and do you realize this, that these are the very ones that we talked about a moment ago that demanded Jesus' crucifixion? The ones who love the miracles. And the charismatic crowd that builds their faith on emotional outbursts are going to have no faith when the emotion runs out. Let me tell you something about emotions. Max uh, sang a song a few weeks ago. And, and as usual, Max has a little message to give everybody before he sings. And he said, good morning, my brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know something about emotions? Today's never like yesterday. Tomorrow is always different than today. And there's no guarantee that in the future the emotions are going to hold up. Emotions are like a roller coaster. Those things go up and down and up and down. And so a church service for people that are always looking for emotions, it's like a fix for a junkie. They have to go to church to get their charge, their emotional charge to get them through to the next fix and they can come to church. So they keep running and running until the emotions fall, uh, uh, finally, finally run out. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
Saving faith is not built on emotion. Saving faith is steadfast and unmovable. It's never dependent upon what happened yesterday, what happens today, or what will happen tomorrow. Saving faith does not require a sign. You know, the Bible says that it's the substance of things hoped for and what? The evidence of things not seen. That's what faith is. Faith does not require a sign. So fanaticism to miracles, about miracles, that's reaction to many people, but it's not the right one. And it leads to another one. It it leads to another one of these people, and I've just called this one freaking out about sin. I mean, finally, you just freak out about sin. So you have people that are marveled over the miracles, marveled over those, and everywhere they're going, they're looking for the next fantastic thing that Jesus will do. And then you have people that follow because they're fascinated with the character. They turned on him, and when did they do it? You'll notice it's when Jesus started talking about their sin. As soon as sin entered into the mix, nobody wanted to follow Jesus anymore. When it started to get personal, and they had to deal with the substance of what he actually said, rather than be enamored with the fad of following him, things changed. And now, Jesus is not as exciting anymore. Have you found this out to be true in your Christian life? You can talk all you want about Jesus until you, until you start condemning immorality like he did. Talk all you want. Say what you want until you say this. Unless you repent, you will perish. Things are okay until you actually say the same things that Jesus said. So if you camp on love and peace and harmony, and which in Jesus' vernacular actually means love, peace, and harmony with the holiness of God, then you can be prepared to be shut down by the people that have always been fascinated with Jesus and all the ones that are fanatical about him because when you start saying the same things Jesus said, they're not fanatical any longer. Love, peace, and harmony with God means what? It means you stop sinning. Stop sinning against him. And that leads me to our final reaction today. Let's get through this here. What is this? That's the reaction of transformation by faith. What will you do with Jesus? Well, the first thing you need to do is you've got to get rid of your pie-in-the-sky ideas and come down to the reality of what he actually taught. You must be transformed from what you are. You are simply not good enough to do anything with him, and he's not going to go with you until you've been transformed by faith. So you're not going to walk with him. You're not going to get anywhere with him. You won't be tolerated by him until you come to him in faith. Now, what do you have to do? Well, first of all, you've got to be delivered from yourself. You've got to be delivered from this idea that you know more than Christ knows. You have to be delivered from your reasoning about right and wrong. And you need to accept and agree what he taught from the scriptures and what God expects of you. You have to be delivered from this reasoning that you come first and what you want is more important than what God wants. You know, many people believe that our greatest enemy is Satan. Satan is a powerful enemy. But there's no person who ever did what Satan wanted them to do, who ever gave in to Satan's temptation unless they wanted to do it. The problem is not Satan. The greatest enemy is not him. It's you. And when God deals with us, he doesn't say, well, I'm sorry, you can't be saved because Satan, because of Satan. Satan's just too powerful. I'm sorry. What the Bible actually says in Colossians 1.21 says that you are alienated and enemies of God by your own wicked works. 
In first, or rather in Titus chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, it says, Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They have all gone astray or out of the way. They have all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Who is that? It's you. Nobody else but you. Self is the problem. And until you're willing to be delivered from self, then you've already decided what you're going to do with Jesus. Now, what else? You have to be also delivered from sin. Sin's the culprit. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If it weren't for sin, you could go merrily on your way and you could skip right into heaven. But you're a sinner. You're always and only a sinner, and so you must repent of your sin. So that means that you have to turn from it. You have to turn from the way that you're going and go God's way. Did you know that most churches do not preach repentance today? I've even picked up gospel tracts from fundamental churches where the word repentance is never even mentioned. But repentance is an essential part of the gospel of Christ. If you do not repent, as some people put it, you'll split hell wide open. Folks, that's the kind of teaching that got Jesus put on the cross. He was preaching transformation, but the people never thought that they needed it. We don't need transformation, but whenever you see saving faith in the Scriptures, it's all, it always comprehends the idea of repentance from sin. And it doesn't mean simply turning from unbelief to belief. Unbelief is a sin for sure, but you're never actually going to turn from unbelief until you have turned from all of your sins and trust Christ. Well, all of that leads me back to where I started the sermon. We're talking about evangelism, aren't we? A person who has been transformed by Christ has another transformation, and that is he is transformed from silence. He's delivered from silence. Now, people that get saved don't keep quiet about it. If you look at the examples back in chapters 8 and 9, sometimes Jesus said, don't tell anybody. And I've explained to you why Jesus said, don't tell. A lot of times it had to do with the specific miracles of healing that he was doing and reasons why he had to tell them that. When Christ's teaching ministry was over, though, and when the timing was right for the cross, and then after he was crucified, you will never find a command in Scripture for silence. In the beginning, I told you about the Great Commission, and this is when Jesus ascended into heaven. Just before that, he gave the Great Commission, and the first thing he said was, Go! Go and tell somebody about this. Go and tell people about me. That's the commission of the Christian. Go and tell. Our message is the gospel. It's the good news of salvation. And it's Jesus Christ alone. So we're to tell people about it. Those that are transformed by faith have rightly answered this question. What will you do with Jesus? We're to go and tell people about him. That's evangelism. You need to get ready for this because... This next chapter, the next verses, have a great deal of instruction about evangelism. What will you do with Jesus? Trust him, believe him, follow him, obey him, be saved by him, be transformed by him. And then what will you do with Jesus? 
you'll go and tell somebody else. Those are the right responses to what will you do with Jesus. And do you understand this? It makes all the difference in the world for you, personally, what you do with Jesus. And it also makes a difference for everybody else out there who doesn't know him. What you do with Jesus will someday determine what they're going to do with Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we've had to spend in your word today and how important do we see this message of Jesus is. We all have to make a decision about this. Are we going to believe what Jesus said or are we not? Are we going to do what Jesus said or are we not? And every person here today is faced with that. For those who don't know Christ as Savior, a decision needs to be made. Am I going to believe him? Am I going to trust him? Do I want to go to heaven when I die? They must believe him. And then for every Christian here who has already received you by faith and their lives have been changed by you, this should be in their heart as evidence of their salvation. They do want to tell other people about Jesus. Lord, I pray that some people here today would make some decisions about what they will do with Jesus. We just ask you, Lord, to be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.